to, in today's sermon, I'm um, trying to make sure that I don't preach the sermon that I'm going to preach at the wedding ceremony. Uh, <laughs> and so if, if I drift off into that sermon and uh, I get these interesting looks from you, like, why is he talking about marriage or, or sex or, or like passion of love? And, um, or perhaps if you attend that um, wonderful celebration this afternoon and I start talking about 1 Thessalonians, and the letter of Paul to the church at Thessalonica, you too may be looking at me going, why is he talking about that in that venue? Well, I just gave away what book of the Bible we're in this morning. We're in 1 Thessalonians, and uh, if you are like me, you don't like waiting. Waiting is hard. Uh, I'm an action-oriented person, and so as I read through this uh, some of you are nudging one another to your left or to your right, uh, and yet in some ways, perhaps we're all uh, like that, not liking to, liking to wait. But as I read through 1 Thessalonians this week, I was reminded about uh, how, how waiting is not what we're waiting for, like what I'm going to get at the end of my waiting, but waiting is about who I'm becoming. Waiting is about who I'm becoming and who you are becoming in your waiting. And that's why this book, 1 Thessalonians, is, is written. Is uh, The writer here, Paul, is wanting to shape these people and in turn shape us uh, in terms of our waiting. Uh, I've got an Ariana Grande quote here around waiting uh, where she says, I like Aurora, Sleeping Beauty, because... She's just sleeping and looking pretty and waiting for boys to come kiss her. Sounds like a good life. Lots of naps, cute boys, fighting dragons to come kiss you. That's what she's waiting on, she says. It's a character that she can identify with. And our question today is, what are you waiting for? What is it that you and I are really, really waiting for? That reveals what it is that you dream about and what it is that you're truly hoping for. Well, let's look at our original setting and author and audience here as we try to go through this book together. Uh, Paul, again, is writing. Paul, as you know, he's a, he's a uh, convert to Christianity. Uh, that takes place for us in Acts chapter 9, if you want to go back and look how dramatic that conversion actually was. He, Paul, um, an unlikely candidate, starts churches in the known um, Greco-Roman world there. He's convinced that Christ is the Messiah and that Christ, uh, whom he was visited by personally, um, it rose from the dead. And so um, Paul is starting these churches. One church he started is in a city called Thessalonica. I might have to say that a few times, Thessalonica, to, to get it. But, and uh, this church getting started is captured for us in Acts chapter 17. For those of you that want to go back and read actually where Thessalonica shows up, it's there in Acts chapter 17. Uh, Paul and a co-worker, Silas and Timothy, these are disciples of Paul. They're both there uh, writing uh, to this group in Thessalonica. So you'll notice in the very first chapter, Paul is saying, I, Silas, and Timothy, we write to you, dear church of Thessalonica. Well, there's trouble there's trouble and suspicion that's going on there in, in a city like Thessalonica. And the trouble and suspicion is that these people, uh, both Jewish folks and 
non-Jewish people, are becoming followers of Jesus. And so uh, the non-Christians are very suspicious of these, uh, of these people. Christians were accused of defying Caesar, the Roman emperor, and they're undergoing persecution. And so Paul is writing to those people. Uh, this is interesting to me, the, the design um, of, of this book. There are just five short chapters, but the design of it is that there's a prayer in the middle, or sorry, there's a prayer at the beginning, a prayer in the middle, and a prayer at the end. Um, and so chapters one through three is the celebration. Paul is celebrating that they have become followers of Christ and that they're being faithful to Christ. That's worthy of celebration. And chapters four through five, he's challenging them to keep going in their faith. He wants them to grow. And I mean, so this is, this is a letter that relates to you and to me as well, right? Um, let me uh, outline just a few verses from these five chapters. There's no way we could go through all five chapters, so I've highlighted some key verses. Chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, he's, he, Paul, is thanking God for them. Um, and this is like an application for you and me in your prayer life is to thank God for the people in our church. Thank God for God giving faith to different people here in our church. Paul is thanking God for them. He says, you turned away from these idols to serve the living and true God, and now you're waiting for Christ to return. This was a big deal. This was a big deal for their, for their allegiance to be transferred from all the other idols and gods that they had been worshiping to transfer that trust onto a different source named Christ. Uh, and it came at great cost. You could lose friendship with someone. You could lose the trust of your neighbor. And you may be identifying with some of these as you've identified with Christ. Uh, some of these have happened to me personally. Some of these things I'm listing, uh, I've witnessed happen to some of you. There's isolation, there can be isolation from your neighbors, hostility from your family, uh, and even persecution. Chapter 2, another key verse, verse 8 here, uh, we see this sweet pastoral love of Paul as he's reminding them about his love for them. Uh, it, it, he depicts it as though he's become a mother to them and he's become a father to them. And so he says, we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the good news from God, but our lives as well. Paul is saying that the essence of Christian leadership is not authority, not power, not position, not influence or status. That is not what Christian leadership is. Christian leadership, as well as uh, ones who aren't even in Christian leadership, is to be marked by healthy relationships, humble service one to the other, truly uh, gratitude in the way that we relate to each other. Another key verse is in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. He, he's now praying for their endurance. Uh, your Christian faith is, a, is a, lot, a lot like a marathon. <laughs> you need endurance. Uh, it's Christ who's going to get you through the marathon, but he's, he's mindful to pray for their endurance. He says, may the Lord make your love increase. 
and overflow for each other and for everyone else. And may the Lord strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes again. Powerful, powerful verse there. Chapter 4, here's, a, here's a, a key verse, verse 13 and 14. He's giving them a hope of a future resurrection. And uh, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. Since Jesus died and was raised to life again, when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. So encourage each other with that reality, he says. And now we get to our sample passage, which we do each week as we choose one passage that we want to unpack a little bit more and go a little bit deeper in, and it comes from chapter 5. Chapter 5, it's printed there for you. I invite you uh, to look at it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 to uh, 28. I'll read it. It says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. First Thessalonians addresses life between the already and not yet. You and I are living in the already, that is, conversion, and the not yet, our home going. And so that snapshot right there of mine and your life living in between those two realities is what 1 Thessalonians is all about. That we're called to live with action. There's, our, uh, there's the word we were wanting to hear, action. And that action is waiting. <laughs> the action is waiting and uh, in that, God wants to shape us as we wait in these three ways. They're listed there. The first one is in holiness. And the next one is in love. And the last one is in hope. Holiness. Well, wow, none of us feel holy. If you do feel holy, don't raise your hand. Uh, the rest of us may think that you are coming across like hypocrite. Um, so this idea of holiness... This is something God is doing inside of you. I hope you notice that as we were reading through the passage here. It says that God is faithful and God will do it. God is the one who's going to be doing the sanctifying. Uh, key word here, sanctify, means uh, a lifelong process. Lifelong process. Lots of ups, lots of downs. Uh, trajectory uh, overall going in a direction towards being made like Christ. God is sanctifying you. That is God's work that God is committed to do. Uh, we looked at that a couple weeks ago in the book of Philippians because they too were curious, can I lose my salvation? And Paul, the writer of Philippians, said, no, you can't because you weren't the ones that found your salvation. God found you. And so the the same God who started that good work in you will carry it out to its completion. 
And so that process, that living in between, that waiting that we're doing between the already and the not yet is called sanctification. We're being sanctified. Um, so go make yourselves holy. Okay, good, I got your attention. That's not what the passage says. I got a frown from a, from a few of you saying, what? <laughs> but notice here with me, Paul is not saying, and the Bible doesn't say, go make yourself holy. Try really hard. Work harder now. You can do it. It's not the Bible's message at all, but the good news here is, uh, read it with me. It says right here, may God himself sanctify you. That's where our assurance comes from. Some of us really feel like a piece of work. Some of us know people that are a piece of work. And God is, God is saying that God delights in this whole process. God is loving, patient with each of us as he's sanctifying us to grow us, to mature us. Now, another key word we should probably be reminded of at this point is uh, justification. We've got sanctification that we're talking about right now, but justification is an act of God alone where God takes a person um, to faith in Christ and that work is attributed uh, as a work of grace and a person is justified, not because anything that they've done or any future uh, hope of obeying God or some ways they're going to pay God back, but no, they are justified. And that's a one moment in time uh, whereby a person is transferring their trust from, from themselves onto a finished work of Christ, they're justified. They're viewed as blameless. That can't be improved upon, and it certainly can't be downgraded. That's justification. That happened on the cross, and we uh, and others who are placing our faith in Christ and what's already happened, uh, that's when justification is uh, coming to effect in us. Sanctification, though, however, is a lifelong process. It is a partnership between us and God, you and God. Uh, verse 23, let's look at it. He says, sanctify you through and through. I love that. <laughs> almost, to, almost to say, that, you know, it, I think it's a little gentle way of saying there's some work to be done here. Again, not a guilt, oh no, I got a lot to do, but God is saying that God will be sanctifying you through and through. He clarifies it by saying, may your whole spirit, may your whole soul, may your whole body be sanctified. And in chapter five here, if you go back and read it, he gets real specific about their sexuality. And he gets real um, you know, specific about their work uh, regarding their sexuality in contrast to the promiscuous and sexual destructive culture around them which dehumanizes and dishonors and destroys people. He's saying that Christians are to experience the beauty and the power of sex within uh, the haven of a committed marriage and covenant relationship. That is uh, how this sanctification is to be worked out within our sexuality. And then within uh, work, holiness and work, he's saying in contrast to taking advantage of others whenever you work, or being lazy in the way that you work. He's wanting Christians to be known in the city as being reliable people, having integrity and character in what they do, 
being reliable and hardworking people to provide for themselves, as well as be, have enough to be generous with others who don't have enough. So this idea of waiting, again, that was one of our topics here, of waiting, living right here uh, in between these two realities of the already and not yet. Not waiting like you would on the Muni, or waiting on Muni to arrive. Some of us were on Muni this week thinking, when is it going to get here? And bless those who work for Muni. I know they're doing the best they can. Uh, it's not like waiting in the dentist office that feels sometimes pointless or meaningless. Like, where is this going? Why am I waiting? But this very first point I think that Paul is making here for us is the waiting that we're doing has a purpose. It has a point, a big point and a big purpose. And that is that God is sanctifying you. He's inviting you into this process to partner with God for your own sanctification as we're being transformed. Waiting is about who you become as you wait. It's not just some prize at the beginning, or sorry, at the end. It's who you're becoming. Verse 24, God who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Who's going to do it? God. That's very comforting to remember when we think about this, this notion of holiness. Or as chapter 4, verse 3 says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Some of us have wondered, what is God's will? What's God's will for my life? How am I to know God's will? What does God want for me in this situation? One thing you can be sure of is God desires your sanctification. God's will for your life is sanctification. Second thing we're looking at now is, is love. Waiting is about who you become as you wait, and that includes love. Reflection question is, are you becoming a person of love? Are you becoming a person marked by, known for, the love of Christ in you? This is a good time to ask someone who knows you really well if that's how they're experiencing you. What areas of your life needs growth in that area or more sanctification to take place in that area? Jesus, in washing his disciples' feet, and which is a great passage to reflect on during this Lent season, it's John chapter 13. He's washing his disciples' feet. He's showing them that a leader is not a person with authority and position and power and influence, but it's a person who serves. And as he's serving his disciples and washing their feet, he says to them, love each other. Love each other. Don't make it difficult. Uh, don't get all confused about what following me and being a follower of me really means it means loving each other and you will prove to the world that you are my disciples by the way that you love each other so just as I have loved you he says there in that passage in, in John chapter 13 it means with patience it means with kindness it means with gentleness in the way that we treat those that we live with and work with and play with and even strangers whom we may never even talk with. Love is who we hopefully are being shaped into. 
Or as Martin Luther sang centuries ago, in much the best life faileth, and so all of us must live alone by mercy. So much of life fails, and so living life by mercy, meaning having received mercy from God and love from God, that's what we're to overflow with. And when I find myself lacking that love or forgetting to overflow with that love, it's, it's usually a gentle reminder to receive again God's love for me. Uh, next, in terms of showing love for each other, you, you probably heard this uh, as we read it, verse 25. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are saying to that group that they're writing to, pray for us. Temptation for the the recipients of that letter to think, wow, aren't they spiritual? Aren't they such great leaders? They don't. But rather, he says, pray for us. Paul is humbling himself to say, pray for us. Here's an application for you and I this week. How to show love for your brothers and sisters? Pray for them. Go ahead and assume that they, we, I need prayer. Humble ourselves by even asking one another, how can I pray for you this week? Or verse 26 is another way uh, that we can embody love. Verse 26, verse 26 says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Well, get permission first. Um, get permission first before you greet someone with a holy kiss. Um, this God of peace, look, look here, even at the beginning of this passage, this God of peace influences how we relate to each other. It matters. And we don't mean just a superficial greeting, like, hello. Our posture in the way that we're relating to each other is being shaped by who God is. Sounds so easy and so basic, but in those moments of really struggling to love someone, or accept someone, or be merciful with someone. It's remembering that this God of peace is the one who's been peaceful with me. Therefore, in God's peace, I'm going to have gentleness and tenderness. Uh, how can we love uh, our brother and sister this week? Encourage them. Ask first before you give a holy kiss, but encourage them. Encourage them. Verse 27, how can we love one another? It says, have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. What that means for me and you is to have no favorites. No favorites. Have this letter read to all. All the brothers and all the sisters. You see that their unity is in Christ and that all are valued. Everyone in Christ belongs. This truly shapes the way we're being sanctified and the way that we're loving one another and called to love each other. And this last one here, hope. Hope. He's wanting to shape who they become as they wait and he's wanting to give them hope. Not a hope in a right here, right now. Like all I can get out of this world, I must squeeze it out right now. I must have the best vacation. I must have the best meal. I must have the best fill in the blank. Right here, right now, uh, viewing it as though this is my final destination. 
This is the paradise that I must create for myself. Um, But rather the hope that Paul and the Bible is trying to get us to buy into would be a preparation. A preparation for another reality that's coming, that's greater than the one that we're in right now. And basically this very liberating truth is that we can't turn this moment right now into paradise. Hard as we try, hard as we may want to. I mean, that's our humanity, right? Wanting to. That our marriage won't offer us this paradise. Marriage can be wonderful, but it won't offer me the paradise I was destined for. Your children won't offer you that. Your church won't offer you that. Your career won't offer you that. We're headed towards a paradise. And oh, how our marriages, our parenting, our relationship with career and work and our friendships would change if we bought into and believed in the hope, the hope that awaits us. And that is the hope of Jesus' return. No surprise what Paul is talking about here. Verse 23, he even says it. Verse 23, when our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. He's wanting to reassure them, Christ will return. Christ will come back again. The chapter preceding this one in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, there's this hope of Jesus' Jesus' return where some Christians, some followers of Christ have died. And so that makes some of them curious about grandma or mom or brother or sister or friend who's passed away. And wait a minute, what's going to happen to that person? And Paul is encouraging them that despite their loss and despite their grief, they will uh, not, uh, death will not have the final chapter of the story. That in Christ and in Christ's resurrection, nothing can separate us from God's love. And Paul uses this metaphor. If you go back and look at this metaphor, it's brilliant, the one that he uses here. He uses a metaphor of a city that was subjected to the the Roman Caesar would would send a delegation to meet Caesar upon Caesar's arrival. Right, the city would send a delegation if if Caesar were visiting your city. A delegation would be sent to meet Caesar, to welcome Caesar. And so Paul uses that uh, to explain what's going to happen at the arrival and the return of Jesus Christ. That a delegation will also meet Christ when Christ returns. That delegation is going to meet Christ are those who have died before us. They're going to, this is what Paul is doing, it's brilliant. That delegation will meet Christ. Go back and read it, it's profound. And then that delegation along with Christ will then descend on this physical earth to meet us as we welcome Christ to restore this world. There's hope. There's hope in that. There's tremendous hope. That's not being talked about like that in this particular way. Um, beautiful metaphor that he's using there. Paul is he's, he's poking fun here at, 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 the, at the Roman propaganda. <laughs> if you go back and, and look at the nuance here that, that Paul is doing, he, he's poking fun here at Roman propaganda that, hey, Caesar, it's, it's not. It's not you. This is going to bring peace and stability. It's not you. 
That's because Rome's peace came through violence, enslaving their enemies, and military oppression. And Paul is reminding us that Christ is going to return one day and confront that type of injustice. Even the type of injustice that we're seeing and experiencing on every news outlet that's happening in different parts of the world right now. That's chapter um, 5, verses 2 and 3. Christ is going to take care of that injustice when Christ returns to this earth. That's hope. That's hope. Those people needed to hear that kind of hope. And we're those same kind of people So Christians are to live in the present day as if that future hope and reality has already taken place. It hasn't taken place, but it's promised. Go back up earlier in the passage. God is faithful. God will do it. This is the hope we have. Hope of Jesus returning. That despite a nighttime of human evil that lurks, and brings about chaos that they can stay sober and awake as the light of God's kingdom dawns here in this earth and on this earth. It will happen. I will do it, God says. And so this motivates them. This is what motivates them towards holiness. This is what motivates the believer towards not only following Christ, but surrendering one's life around holiness and love and even the hope that you and I choose to have on a given day. This assurance is what motivates us. Or as John Newton sang in the song Amazing Grace, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come because grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. Let's pray that right now. Lord, as we conclude here, uh, looking at this text, uh, we, we even remember verse 28 that says, the amazing grace of Jesus Christ be with you. Wow. Thank you that we're not alone. Thank you that this amazing grace of Christ not only brought us to faith in Christ, but we ask you to continue your work of sanctification in us as we wait expectantly for your return, Lord and King Christ. Amen.